something curious about this broadcast. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. This is TGP nominal. Commence episode now. All systems remain nominal. 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 Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly load of all things science fact and science fiction. Now it's that time of month again uh, where we talk about everything space related and on the other end of this fader should be John Berger. How are you doing sir? I was doing okay until you said it's this time of month and my brain went other places that it shouldn't have. Don't do that Mark. <laughs> <sighs> What can I say? I grew up with three sisters, and the house this house has more females than males, so my bad. Uh-huh. Hi! <laughs> Great start. Anyway. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so, how's you? I'm me. We're done with Halloween. Is it Christmas season yet? Does that mean uh, it's now started? It's been started for a while. I mean, we're, Well, we're, I'm not talking about the retail stores. We've got a channel here that's it's playing 24 hours a day Christmas movies, and it's been doing that for about three weeks. Now, but, 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 what kind of Christmas movies are they talking about? I mean, are they talking not, genuine not Christmas the, movies? Or? Not the good ones. Well, I mean, that's relative. We're talking about stuff that's made for TV, and you know, that kind of... Oh, you mean like crappy Hallmark Channel made for TV movies? Yeah. Oh, uh, my sympathies. <laughs> no, I, I just say it that way because, you know, regarding what's a Christmas movie and what's not, because there's that big debate on is Die Hard a Christmas movie just because it takes place at Christmas? Well, you could say that about Gremlins. Gre- ew. Ew. I don't want to say anything about Gremlins. That was set at Christmas. True. There ain't no way that that's a Christmas movie. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's got a happy ending, I guess, and it's all around Christmas, so I guess you could. But let's blow up a gremlin in the microwave. Merry Christmas, kids. Come on, really? <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, <laughs> but as as regards to Die Hard, I'm not sure. Yeah, that's a that's a big debate. I mean, the, the first two, both of them were set around Christmas, weren't they? Uh was the second. Well, the second one was winter for sure. Hmm. I don't know that that was Christmas or if it was just a winter setting. But they hmm. killed Miles O'Brien on it. That's not cool. I mean, we have films here at Christmas. They're not even Christmas films, but they get they will get shown again and again and again. And we're talking things like Sound of Music. We have that every Christmas for some reason. Yeah, I don't know. I guess because they make the most ridiculous links because um, My Favorite Things has somehow become a Christmas a Christmas song. I'm guessing because they mention brown paper packages tied up with string. Yeah. And like, yeah. uh, that that's that's a really bad reason to make that into a Christmas song. The one from Dan Fogelberg, um, Same Old Lang Syne, I think. It's a gorgeous song, and I love it. It's not a happy song whatsoever, and it takes place on Christmas Eve. Therefore, it's a Christmas song? What? What? No. No. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. Of course, then again, oh, oh, what's the one that you guys love over there? Oh, by the Pogues. Oh, fairy tale of fairy New York. York tale of New York, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's all about what, a drunken fight? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a favorite over there. Oh, it's it's huge over here. Absolutely huge. It's catchy though, I do like it. Mm-hmm. That'll never, ever play over here, at least not unedited. Yeah, we did have a point in about two thousand and seven where the BBC started fading out at certain points. And people complained. 
yep. <laughs> that it, it should be kept as it is. And they kept it as it was. And um, yeah. And the world still turns. <laughs> it's amazing how that works. Yeah. I mean, what you got to remember is that the, the song is set at a certain time where we weren't as politically correct as we are now. No, 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 no. <laughs> Whatever. Hey, in, in better news, spacey news, it's done. I'm guessing you're talking about the Saturn V. It's right here, my little baby. I'm not exactly little. <laughs> well, it's only, I mean, come on, it's a meter. Exactly one meter. So that's, uh, you know, 39 and a fraction inches. So, yeah, it, it's big. It, it's a big rocket. But it's mine. It's done. Took about, I want to say, 14 to 16 hours to put it together. And I I will say this for Lego. When when you look at these things, it's like, well, why do they make it so complicated? Because you look at the instructions, and they've got all these internal frameworks that they're going that you'll never see. And I'm just like, what is going on? Why do they want me to put all this stuff together? Well, that's because this thing is solid. They really make this thing so that it's really tough to come apart. Mm Mm-hmm. Which, which really surprised me. But it, actually, this one does separate. It's got stage one and stage two separate. Uh, stage three and the command module and all that. I'm sure you're just going to take the photos from my Facebook page. <laughs> yeah, let people see what it's all about. Yeah, it, it's pretty. And it's finally done. It barely fits under my desk because... Under my desk? On top of my desk. Because I've got the uh, drop ceiling. Mm-hmm. It's just a little bit lower at that spot because of various pipes and so forth that are up on the wall. But, uh, yeah, so it's there, it's done, it's very cute. And it's got these adorable little uh, teeny, teeny, tiny astronauts, too, for the moon scene. And uh, we are talking really tiny because they're, oh, yeah. uh, they're not like uh, minifigure size, are they? They're oh, small God, no. I guess they're maybe a centimeter tall. Wow, that is small. See, I'm trying to go metric here, you know, trying to be good for our global listeners. <laughs> I'm also not afraid of it either. There's actually a place around here that used to show temperatures in both Fahrenheit and Celsius. I was like, whoa, isn't that like against the law over here or something? <laughs> we embrace both of it. I think I mentioned to you before how we do the weather and the temperature here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we, we embrace them both. If it's, um, if it's hot weather, we'll do it in Fahrenheit because it sounds more impressive saying hey, it's 100 degrees outside. But if it's really cold, we'll say it's minus 10. Which to us, minus 10 is a lot colder than your minus 10. <laughs> That's true. We're what, the only country that does all Imperial now? Is that right? I think so. One, Maybe one of two, but yeah, Canada's gone metric. Yeah, that'll be the French in them, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it honestly wouldn't phase me if they did go metric. Give us a couple of years to transition over, Pfft, whatever. It's a measurement. Yeah. I mean, our, our cars have had both miles and kilometers on them for, God, ever since I was a kid. So it's mm-hmm. been a few decades. Eh, you know, who knows? Plus, at least if we all went metric, we would not have some of the little U.S.-Russia space problems that we've had in the past because of conversions. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, different things that didn't uh, connect, shall we say, because of the difference. <laughs> Literally. Ah, I see what you did there. <laughs> I see what you did. Right, shall we get on with things? Oh, surely. So we're going to have a short break, and when we come back, we're going to go all spacey. Space. The 
final frontier. Final because it wants to kill us. Sometimes we forget that. Start taking it all for granted. The suits, the ships, the little bubbles of safety as they protect us from the void. But the void is always waiting. This is TGP Nominal. Do you remember some time ago we spoke about Hyperloop, which was the high-speed transportation system designed by Elon Musk? Mm -hmm. The Hyperloop uses a linear electric motor to accelerate and decelerate an electromagnetically levitated pod through low-pressure tubing. Now, Elon Musk open-sourced the concept because he was a bit too busy running SpaceX and Tesla, and a company calling themselves Hyperloop Technology stepped up to the plate and took over the project. Hyperloop Technologies was later rebranded as Hyperloop One. But there's a new twist in the story, and this was announced in a recent press release. And it reads as follows. We have a new ally in our mission to reinvent transportation, and it's someone who's changed the industry a few times already in his career. Today, we are announcing that the legendary entrepreneur Richard Branson and his Virgin Group have invested in Hyperloop One. Nice. Not surprised. Richard is also joining the Hyperloop One's board of directors, bringing along a proven track record of delivering breakthrough transportation experiences. Yeah, I've been on Virgin Trains. <clears throat> Won't say any more about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, uh, the Virgin Group and Hyperloop One will be entering into a global strategic partnership focused on passenger and mixed-use cargo services. As part of the partnership, our company's name will be changing to Virgin Hyperloop One. Virgin and Hyperloop One are working together to present a brand that's instantly recognisable around the world and lends tremendous credibility as we grow. It's interesting that Richard Branson got involved in that. I mean, he's getting involved in so many different things now. It was only a matter of time. Well, I mean, uh, it fits, though. I mean, everything that he does deals with transport. His airlines, as you said, his trains. So it's a natural fit. It also says on here that uh, they've been testing a full system test of DevLoop site in Nevada. So they've got a, a, a mock-up of the of the system and they've passed all the tests. So it's just a matter of time getting it set up. So we now have projects underway in the United Arab Emirates, US, Canada, Finland, Netherlands and India. The combination of our technology and Virgin's expertise in operations, safety and passenger experience will accelerate our commercialization phase. Richard Branson has been there in taking on the big boys. I mean, he, he took on British Airways and, and won against them. You know, <laughs> That's a, a big thing to do. He's not afraid. And he's got the money to not be afraid. That's true. <laughs> no, this, this makes total sense. So, and it would be nice to see that happening. We're not, I don't think we're actually going to see anything major in our time, but who knows? We'll see. And that's at least one place where you guys have it a bit easier than we do because we're geographically pretty darn big yeah you know so yeah a hyperloop train from new york to los angeles that ain't happening in our lifetime mm -hmm. but i mean i could see smaller ones maybe new york to dc 
San Francisco to LA. That'd be cool. They were, they've been talking about just doing ones across California because the state of the traffic. Oh yeah. <laughs> get into Los Angeles, for example, is just a nightmare. It's horrible. It is. Oh, unbelievable. But yeah, if they can just do it in smaller areas, um, state by state, and then work it from there. I mean, for us, I mean, it'll probably end up. I don't know. We could get from London to Edinburgh in forty-five minutes or something. Right. Which that just seems really weird commuting from London to Edinburgh. It just seems a weird concept. Um, Why? But it, well, be, do you guys still hate Scotland that much? Come on. No, I'm not talking about the the, 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 <laughs> the fact that you can be in in Scotland in 45 minutes and go to work, yeah. or the or the other way round. It, it just seems a really weird concept, but probably doable within the next I don't know 20, 30 years. Probably. I mean, really. Japan has the same kind of thing, just not in a vacuum tube. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those, so, those bullet trains are unbelievable. But these tubes are traveling at anywhere up to, I think they said up to 800 mile an hour. So, <laughs> hmm. That, is ama- that could get you across the country in roughly five hours. No, actually, that's it's less than that. That'd be about four hours at 800 miles an hour. Yeah. That's just Oof. quick. <laughs> For $20,000 a ticket. But they, they want to get it so that it's going to be, you know, book standard train prices. That'll be a while before that happens, but yeah, who knows? Well, we finally got proof that our solar system has its first visitor from outside the solar system. A big honking chunk of rock has gone past the sun, and they've been able to confirm that it came from outside of our own solar system. Now, when you think about it, the whole thing, the creation of the galaxy and so forth, there's a whole bunch of rocks and other materials out there drifting in space. We've never had proof that anything came from outside of our solar system, but now we're pretty sure that we do. And it's really tiny. The thing is only about a quarter of a mile in diameter, but it looks like it came from the direction of the constellation Lyra and is moving through space at about 57,000 miles an hour. So according to this, Paul Chodas, who's the manager of NASA's Center for Near-Earth Object Studies, no acronym listed. I like it. (laughs) The orbit is very convincing. It's going so fast that it clearly came from outside the solar system. It's whipping around the sun, it has already gone around the sun, and it has actually gone past the Earth on its way out. So this was discovered back on October 19th by Hawaii's Pan-STARRS-1 telescope, which is specifically made for the discovery of near-Earth objects. They say that uh, it didn't move the way comets and asteroids normally do. So that's one of the ways they were able to realize that's not from our neck of the woods. And right now, it's speeding out towards the constellation Pegasus. And because of its size, it's going to be impossible to see soon. They said they might have a few more weeks uh, with large telescopes. But otherwise, it's going to be completely gone and out of sight. But there is a possibility that Hubble should be able to spy on this thing as well. Obviously, that's a scheduling uh, scheduling, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. I, it's yeah. all down to scheduling. It's whether they can fit it in from whatever they're doing already. Don't you love that when you just you fail on the last word of the sentence? <laughs> <laughs> Why do our brains do that? But yeah, so uh, our our first interstellar object that we know of, anyway. That's unreal, isn't it? Especially fifty-eight thousand miles an hour. That makes eight hundred miles an hour seem really slow, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, just a bit. <laughs> I'm still just fascinated at the fact that it's less than a quarter mile wide, and they found it. Mm-hmm. 
down to the fact that it is moving quite erratically compared with what we're used to. I mean, obviously there's no... I don't know how you would really describe it, but let's just say that the solar system flat, that north would be pointing up away from the solar system at a 90-degree angle. This thing was coming in at like an 80-degree angle. So, you know, relative to the plane of the solar system, it was coming in almost perpendicular. Yeah, that yeah was... It, it was a really sharp... Well, that's one of the ways that they also identified, hey, this is definitely not from us because, the, you know, some of the comets and so forth, there may be 30-degree difference. But this one was coming in almost from directly above. Yes, definitely something alien, isn't it? It's <laughs> when I say alien, it's meaning not what we're used to. Now, there's that plus the fact that it passed so close to Earth. Who knows how many of these we don't see normally? But just the fact that everything came together that we could notice this one. I love this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're we're pretty clued up. Do you remember? We joked about what a moon base should be called. Mm-hmm. Well, Elon Musk revealed that SpaceX's planned next generation rocket will make it possible to build a moon base. And the name he picked is just his latest homage to beloved science fiction. And in this case, the British cult classic Space 1999. Musk's proposed name for the the base was Moon Base Alpha. Nice. Which was referenced to the 1970s sci-fi show, which starred the recently deceased Martin Landau as Commander John Koenig. The series imagines a catastrophe on the far future date of September the 13th, 1999, in which a nuclear explosion kicks the moon out of the Earth's orbit and sends the crew of Moon Base Alpha into to a strange alien field odyssey through the cosmos and it has bar none the grooviest theme music in television <laughs> history although there is a bit of a love-hate situation when it comes to the theme tune because it changed between seasons one and seasons two most people prefer the original theme by Barry Gray, famous for scoring many of Jerry Anderson's shows, including Thunderbirds, but I personally prefer the season two theme.
composed by Derek Wadsworth, who also composed the score for Jerry Anderson's Day After Tomorrow, and has worked with an amazing list of musical artists from Kate Bush to Simply Red. Now, Space 1999 has its detractors. Legendary sci-fi author Isaac Asimov had some less-than-kind things to say about it in 1975, but Musk has long indicated his fondness for the series. In March of this year, he tweeted a supposed advert for SpaceX's planned lunar travel that was, in fact, a trailer for the Destination Moonbase Alpha, which was a 1978 compilation movie with edited episodes of the show. I'll I'll put that in the show notes, actually, because it's quite funny. This isn't the first time Musk has dropped a reference to a bit of beloved British science fiction. During last year's International Astronautical Congress in Guadalajara, Mexico, he indicated that the leading contender for the name of SpaceX's Mars mission is the Heart of Gold, named after a ship in Douglas Adams' The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. (laughs) SpaceX's proposed next-generation rocket will be able to make it to the moon in three days and return without having to refuel on the moon. Musk indicated that this would make it feasible to use the rocket to begin construction of a moon base alpha. He said, It's 2017. We should have a lunar base by now. Musk didn't say humanity is at least 18 years behind the date that it should be there. But um, whilst we're on the subject of Elon Musk... Did you hear about his honourable mention in Star Trek Discovery? No, because I don't watch it. Now, during a recent episode, the captain of the Starship Discovery, Gabriel Lorca, tells Chief Engineer Paul Stamets that he wants him to carry out a high-risk activation of an experimental spore drive. But in true engineer style, Stamets is not convinced that the drive is ready to be activated yet. And Lorca's response is... How do you want to be remembered in history? Alongside... Right, brothers? Elon Musk, Zephram Cochran? Or as a failed fungus expert? A selfish little man who puts the survival of his own ego before the lives of others. So, is Elon Musk about to change the course of history between now and the year 2256? Well, I mean, I, uh, <laughs> not saying he won't. It seems like a bit of a risk to take. I mean, they put him alongside the Wright brothers and Zephram Cochran, who invented yeah. warp drive. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know about that. (laughs) But I thought that was quite amazing to have, you know, a nice little homage to him there. But looking into the character, Paul Stamets, uh, who's the engineering officer on board the Starship Discovery, I discovered he's named after a famous mycologist, or a fungi biologist, (laughs) which would explain the character's fascination with spores, moulds and fungus, a bit like Egon Spengler in Ghostbusters. (laughs) Um, Now, I'm going to have to go through the characters in there now to see if there are any more characters that are named after famous scientists. (laughs) I was just blown away by it. I was watching the show. I wasn't really taking taking it in, but then I I heard Elon Musk, and I had to rewind and went, I'm sure I just heard Elon Musk mentioned there. I don't know. That seems kind of (laughs) weird. 
<laughs> you know, not saying that he hasn't done anything. You know, SpaceX is fantastic, and and what's going on with Hyperloop One, but to be in the same breath as the Wright brothers and Zephram Cochran, eh. he's got to do something in that timeline. <laughs> something absolutely I mean, amazing. He, he's reignited the interest in space, no question. But the Wright brothers, and you can debate on that one all you want. There, I know there's a huge thing about who actually flew first. Um, but when it comes to the Wright brothers and Zephram Cochran, they completely changed the way people travel. I don't know that, that even Hyperloop or I, I don't know. The, the thing is, we are talking about the name of somebody who has invented something in, in a fictional world. We're talking about somebody yeah. who hasn't, who's invented something that hasn't been invented yet. Yeah. <laughs> but we're talking about it as though he has, which is really amazing. Uh, I don't. <laughs> what do you think of Discovery? I'm finding it difficult to take in, to be honest. Um, I, I like the concept of it. This spore drive that they've invented is a really weird thing. The Klingons... <sighs> In the movies, they spoke a bit of Klingon, and then they just assumed everyone else could speak Klingon, so you heard it in English. Mm -hmm. Whereas this has got a lot of subtitles. For me, there is a bit too much subtitling, and they, they do it in a font which is very Klingon-like. You know when you see Klingon written down? Sure. It's a similar kind of font, and not easiest to read when it's at the bottom of the screen. Yeah, that's kind of goofy. We know that the Klingons are speaking. They've got a very distinct language. <laughs> so, <laughs> don't need to make the text hard to read. <laughs> yeah, it's it's still early days. And, and we mentioned off, you know, before we were recording, even with the other Star Treks, Next Gen and Deep Space Nine, it took about a year for it to find its stride. Mm -hmm. And then that's when it started to get good. I mean, let's face it. The first season of The Next Generation, uh, yeah, a couple was... of good ones, a couple of good ones, but some of them are just downright painful to watch. Mm -hmm. It isn't until you get into probably season three when things start to get pretty good. It was really funny when it first started because uh, people were going, I like the way this is going. Um, you've got, you know, the captain is a female, the first officer is a female, and then by episode two, things change, the captain gets killed off, the first officer becomes a uh, fugitive, if you like, <laughs> and... Mm. Uh, ends up being transferred to a, like a penal colony, doesn't actually get there, and ends up on the Discovery and has to kind of build her way back up again. And that's basically what she's trying to do is build up her reputation again because everybody seems to see her as the the person that killed her captain and, and the entire crew of the, the starship that she was on. Yikes. So it's the first time a leading character, the lead character of a show, isn't actually a captain. She is basically one step up from a prisoner. Oh. Yeah, see, like I said, I haven't seen it only because I'm not going to pay CBS additional money for it. Mm -hmm. It's a money grab. They're, they're just trying to get extra money from the Star Trek fans, and I'm not, I'm not buying into it, literally or otherwise. Yeah. What was your take when they dropped some F-bombs? Yeah, I didn't get that. <laughs> I, I, for me, that wasn't Star Trek, but... Um... Yeah, I don't get that one either. It's like, and I get it, you know, just like, you know, I've got three kids, and I know very well their language ain't the best when they're outside the house. Mm -hmm. You know, I get that. Well, I mean, actually, they had it in, in Star Trek First Contact when Data saw the planet coming toward him. 
Of course, that oh, was also yeah. used to be. That, that was like one of the funniest scenes in the movie, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was like, wow, really? I, I get where they're going with that, and the fact that they're no longer subject to uh, FCC regulations because they're on a separate streaming site. Yeah, I was like, that just seems like doing it for the sake of doing it and if i remember rightly uh, the scene that they did it in they were in their quarters which means you know they they weren't on the bridge they weren't in any way right. in a, an official capacity so you probably would be probably swearing when you're in your own quarters talking with mm-hmm. your colleagues yeah but did it need to be in the show i don't think it, it needed to be there um it is a lot more violent than the uh other stuff i mean the cl- I, the klingons are really brutal in this really yeah i did brutal. read that a lot of people have been getting turned off by that too but do you expect the Klingon? i mean this is before they started having some of these agreements and you know things that they've had over the years mm-hmm. um so the the Klingons were a brutal race, and they always have been a brutal race. Well, in all uh, the other series, they were. You know, people got killed with batleths and mechleths and mm. blasted with phasers and, and disruptors and so forth. I mean, the but, one, one episode I've just seen, this this guy was thrown across the, the room by a Klingon and hit the wall. He's on the floor, and he just stamps on his neck and breaks it. That would be effective. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, one thing I do like, the Starship Federation, when they say, we come in peace, mm-hmm. the Klingons see that as their battle cry because they say they don't come in peace. They never do come in peace. Mm. So when they say, we come in peace, they're there for war. That's the way the Klingons see it. Well, yeah, understandable. God knows our own history is full of that, too. Mm-hmm. And that's probably what they're basing it on. Yep. No, but you're going to keep watching. Yeah. I know, it's just, I, I know it's just been renewed for season two. Yeah. Yeah, recently. I'm going to give it a few more episodes and see what I think from there. The, what we were talking about just then about the moon base, um, this actually ties in with that. Space probe data confirmed that an, an enormous cavern exists beneath the moon's surface, offering a possible protected site for a future lunar base. And this was according to the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency on October the 18th. The cavern found in the Marius Hills area on the near side of the moon is about 31 miles long, or 50 kilometers, and 300 and 30 feet or 100 meters wide according to data taken by JAXA's Kagaya lunar probe. The study confirmed that the cavern was likely created by volcanic activity about 1 billion years ago and there is a possibility of ice or water existing in the rocks within the cave, the team said. Previous research has identified the potential for underground networks of tubes as well. Junichi Hoyuyama, researcher at JAXA, said we've known about these locations that we thought were lava tubes but their existence has not been confirmed until now we haven't actually been inside the cave itself so there are high hopes that exploring it will offer more details lava tubes are found in many volcanic areas on earth including lanzarote hawaii iceland and north queensland in australia also the galapagos islands and sicily in italy Uh, researchers from the european space agency have been exploring these formations to compare lava tube locations here on earth with those on the moon and on mars so yeah there is a possibility for a a decent spot for us to build a lunar base Hmm. obviously you and i Love the whole thing with the uh, New Horizons and the photos that came back and and all of that good stuff. Yeah. 
Well, there's now a new grassroots movement to try to build momentum for a new NASA mission out to the outer solar system. New Horizons, believe it or not, got started this way too. Yeah. It was actually a, a grassroots letter writing campaign in the late 1980s, and now they're trying to do it again. In fact, it's being started by someone named Kelsey Singer, who is a New Horizons team member. <laughs> not very surprised by this one. What they're doing is now uh, three dozen scientists have drafted letters in support of a potential return mission to either Pluto or something else out in the Kuiper Belt, but basically anything beyond Neptune's orbit, although that would be kind of cool as well. So these letters are going to be sent to NASA Planetary Science Chief Jim Green, BBC, that's NASA in all uppercase, uh, as well as the chairs of several committees that advise the agency. Singer said that we need the community to realize that people are interested, we need the community to realize that there are important, unmet goals, and we need the community to realize that this should have a spot somewhere in the decadal survey. Now, that's uh, basically a survey for a decade. I'm hoping it's not something goofy like decadal. <laughs> that just sounds really weird. You know, so I'm, I'm just going to call it decadal, and if I'm wrong, well, I read it. <laughs> <laughs> now, that whole, that, that's the Planetary Science Decadal Survey, which is a report by the National Academy of Sciences that basically says what the top exploration priorities are going to be for the next decade. There you go. And, and that's normally how this works. You get the interest of the community, and then hopefully it will eventually get on that survey. And then from there, NASA will start to sort things out and, and decide you know, what the next kind of missions it should be. So, you know, they could do anything, right, really. They could do a flyby of Eris, maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, whatever. Any, any other kind of Kuiper Belt objects. What they're hoping to do is that anything that they do examine will be at least a few hundred kilometers or so in size. Because you, you figure the next thing that, that New Horizons is going to be visiting, the MU-69, is it's only like 20 miles across. It's, it's a tiny object. So they're hoping to do something more of the, the larger items that are out there. I still say Uranus or Neptune would be really cool. Yeah, because um, as we say, we haven't really done anything with those. They're kind of like the, the ones that get left on the shelf. I, I don't know. I guess they figure they're gas giants. When you look at them, they're kind of bland. They're nice and colorful, but they don't have anything really, really super distinctive about them, like Jupiter or Saturn. So I kind of get it. But that doesn't mean they should be ignored either. Because they might experience something that they, you know, at close quarters that they probably didn't get before. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, who knows? Yeah. So, yeah, the, the last survey was put out in 2011, and that was to cover the years 2013 to 2022. Well, 2022 is only five years out, so obviously the next one is due then, which is to sort out NASA's plans for 2020s to 2030s. Mm -hmm. So hopefully this letter-writing campaign will get something in that time schedule to head out toward the Kuiper Belt as well. We'll see what happens. Hey, if it, Considering how successful New Horizons was, it'd be kind of surprising if they didn't do something else out there. The attention that it got was just unbelievable, and people want something similar, don't they? they yeah. We've had a lot of these kind of uh, exploration missions, and the, the popularity of them has just been unreal. For a spacecraft, it's just yeah. it's strange. It's almost what? as though it was a person. Yeah, well, and all, well, yeah, and consider the images and data that we got from Pluto mm -hmm. with hardware that's what fifteen years old now, something like that. Yep. Imagine what we could get with technology right now. You know, that would be fantastic. Hmm, certainly would. 
I mean, hopefully, hopefully it's something more than one watt. <laughs> <laughs> Not even so much the wattage, but just the bit rate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So who knows? I mean, I, I, I'm hopeful, seeing as how New Horizons was so successful, that we'll finally get to explore some of the other outer planets. Hopefully. <laughs> Blue Origin announced on October 19th that it had conducted the first successful test of its big E4 engine, a major milestone for both the company's launch vehicle plans and for United Launch Alliance. In a tweet, the company included a six-second video taken from several angles, but provided no other information including date, duration or thrust level of the test. A Blue Origin spokesman said that the company was not releasing additional information about the test at this time. The BE-4 engine is a liquid oxygen and a liquefied natural gas compliant engine capable of generating 555,000 pounds force of thrust. The engine was developed in-house at Blue Origin, primarily with its own funding and some support from ULA. Blue Origin plans to use the BE-4 on its new Glenn vehicle that the company has announced last year. The first stage of the rocket will use seven BE-4 engines, and the second stage will use a single BE-4. That rocket will be able to place up to 45 tonnes into low-Earth orbit and 13 tonnes into geostationary transfer orbit. The BE-4 is also under consideration by ULA for its next-generation Vulcan rocket. ULA is considering both BE-4 and the AR-1, which is a a liquid oxygen and kerosene engine under development by Aerojet Rocket Dime, but has indicated the preference for the BE-4. Yeah, quite a powerful engine. (laughs) Just a bit. Knowing what uh, they've done in the past, because the, the last ship was called the, the the New Shepherd, so that was obviously named after Alan Shepard. This one is after John mm-hmm. Glenn. So, who knows? Eventually, it'll probably be the New Armstrong. <laughs> hey, do we have any update on when the Falcon Heavy's going to go up? Uh, anytime soon. Uh, okay. <laughs> Because basically they've said November, and that's what they've been sticking to, so I don't know. Oh, actually, there was an update today. SpaceX aims for late December launch of Falcon Heavy. Right. Uh, No earlier than December 29th. So we're talking January. Probably. Maybe even February. (laughs) I hadn't actually seen that, so yeah, until then it was still on for some point in November. Well, like I said, this article literally came out today. Oh, well, you know what? At least they're still looking at it. Would have been nice. Still could be nice. Listen to me talking like it's not going to happen. It is going to happen. It's just, as you said, (laughs) they say it's going to be the end of December, so probably January or February. (laughs) (laughs) You know how engineers work. (laughs) You know what? If that delay is there to make sure that problems are fixed and all that, Mm -hmm. they can take as much time as they need to. Yeah, definitely. You know, but let's not make this like video games where, oh, you're delaying a game for two months. Hey, oh, shut up, you privileged whiner. They do it for a reason. More importantly than the Falcon Heavy, when are they going to get a human-rated dragon capsule? Oh. That is really more important. Uh, so. That's a good question. But I guess they still want to try to test things out before they actually risk someone's life on it. Yeah. You know what? Space is hard. Space is dangerous. Yeah, definitely is. And God knows they've been able to prove that their rockets work. Mm-hmm. 
I think it's because at the moment they, they don't actually dock, do they? They berth rather than dock. So I think they can't really do it until the actual capsule can dock directly into the space station. But they're working on it because that's what all the, some of the, well, not all of them, but some of the spacewalks have been all about, making sure these new um, connecting plates are ready for the next style of capsules. I still say that they should not have stopped the shuttle. I know they were big. I know they were expensive, but we got nothing now. We have to depend on Russia for it, which isn't a bad thing. Mm-hmm. NASA and Roscosmos have signed a joint statement on researching and exploring deep space. But at the 68th International Astronautical Congress in Adelaide, Australia, they signed a joint statement basically saying, yeah, we're, we're both going to cooperate. Obviously, they've been working on the International Space Station together, so this really isn't a big surprise, at least to, to a lot of us. Granted, things between the U.S. and Russia have been a little bit on the rocky side, but it, it's still nice to see this agreement saying, like, look, whatever, politics, we're doing this for exploration purposes. Mm-hmm. At least that's how I read it. Robert Lightfoot, the acting administrator at NASA headquarters, said that while Deep Space Gateway is still in concept formulation, NASA is pleased to see growing international interest in moving into cislunar space as the next step for advancing human space exploration. Statements such as this one signed with Roscosmos show the gateway concept as an enabler to the kind of exploration architecture that is affordable and sustainable. Right now they're working on uh, common objectives regarding mission for the 2020s, including the whole gateway concept to get out into deep space. They want to ensure that future deep space missions take full advantage of technology development, as they say here, which I don't understand why they wouldn't. (laughs) I kind of doesn't really need to be said. It's just nice to see that regardless of all the stuff that's going on, that NASA and Roscosmos are saying, you know what, whatever, we're still working together. All this talk of this gateway business... Does it seem to you like people have been listening to us? It might be. (laughs) See, ladies and gentlemen, we know what we're talking about here. People listen to us. We we have been going on about this for so long. (laughs) Nearly four years. Yep. (laughs) And the powers that be seem to be going, well, hang on a moment. (laughs) You know, I listened to a podcast the other night, and those guys really made sense. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't think so. (laughs) It just didn't make sense just, like, putting all your eggs in one basket. No. I get the excitement for Mars. I do. But baby steps here, folks. Mm-hmm. Let's get to the moon first. Then we'll figure out how to get to Mars. Yeah, because Richard Garriott wants photographs of his property. <laughs> what? The rover that he owns up on... on oh, uh, right. I believe he wants to pay someone who's actually getting some kind of probe or rover up, up onto the moon to uh, actually take photographs of his property while they're up there. <laughs> But Isn't there another rover uh, ready to, to go up, or at least to uh, get ready for There's it? a German one going up, which is powered by Audi Quattro, believe it or not. And so it's going to look like a Formula One car. <laughs> <laughs> that actually and kind of cool, really. <laughs> the, these guys want to send this rover onto the Apollo 17 site because they want to have a look at the original rover to see how it's fared over the years. They want to see if it's decayed, how these rovers actually behave in those harsh conditions over the years because obviously they're going to be leaving vehicles up there for a long time and they want to know if there's going to have to be a lot of repair work done on things and uh, all that kind of stuff. So that's, that's going to be interesting. That's true. Oh, wow, I never thought of that. So that that's their plan is to get a rover up there with some cameras 
to have a look at the the original lunar rover and uh, see what condition it's in. Ah, point the Hubble at it. With its mirrors, <laughs> I'm sure it could find it. Yeah. <laughs> a Soyuz spacecraft returning three people to Earth in April experienced a partial loss of pressure during the final stages of its descent. The incident was revealed during a committee meeting of NASA's International Space Station Advisory Committee. Strangely, that hasn't got an acronym either. And it's Maybe they listen to us too. <laughs> they said, look, guys, John and Mark keep making fun of us for the acronyms. Let's back off. <laughs> This is one of a series of events that have raised questions about the reliability of the Russian vehicle supporting the station. Chairman Thomas Stafford, a former astronaut, said the incident took place when the main parachute of the Soyuz spacecraft deployed about 8 kilometers above the landing site in Kazakhstan. A buckle that is part of the parachute system struck the capsule. Mm. The buckle struck the welding seam, and as a result, there was a depressurizing event that resulted in some of the air escaping into the capsule, he said. Stafford didn't actually identify the specific mission where this took place, but he did say it happened in April of this year. Now, that was really silly because there was only actually one capsule that came back to Earth in April, so it wasn't difficult to work out. <laughs> <laughs> which one it was it was the Soyuz M MS-02 which landed on the 10th of April and it carried Shane Kimbra, Cosmosot Sergei Ryzakov and Andrei Borisenko who all of them spent six months on the space station but um, it, it didn't put the lives of the uh, the crew in danger a valve normally opens once the capsule descends to the altitude of five kilometers to allow outside air into the capsule. The crew members were also wearing pressure suits as standard, so yeah, they weren't in any particular harm. It's just that the air came in a little bit earlier than normal. Right. But that's not the point. There could have been a situation there. Oh, sure, sure. Any Anything hitting the sides of uh, vehicles is, is a worry. Space is dangerous. That's just what we've been saying. Mm-hmm. Kudos to these people, because they know it's dangerous. They know they might not be coming home. They still do it. I was talking to Ross about this the other day, actually, the, uh, the Apollo era, um, especially with Apollo 11, where the, the president had two speeches that he could read out. One to say, yes, we've successfully landed on the moon and we're coming back to Earth. And the one that said, unfortunately, we're not able to get the astronauts back from the moon. So depending on what happened, he had two speeches already made out, ready for mm. such problems. That makes sense, though. Even if you look at like the newspaper industry, I don't mean newspapers in the actual physical thing, a lot of the obituaries that they have out there are already written. Oh, yeah. For something like that, I wouldn't be surprised if they had press releases or whatever, at least frameworks of them, mm -hmm. set up for every single space shuttle that went up. Yeah. Wouldn't surprise me. It's a scary thought, though, when you think about it. You know, it is, it's, but it's it's realistic. Something goes wrong, and there's no way that they could leave the moon. It would be scary stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it is, it is. But yeah, I, I think of people like like astronaut Abby. She <laughs> desperately wants to get to Mars. Oh, she yeah. wants to be one of the first people on Mars. She knows damn well it's a one way trip. Mm -hmm. You know, more to her. I'd hate that, but she wants to do it. And she knows it's she's not coming back if she does. But they're trying to change that, though, aren't they? they, they Brandon, and, yeah. The, Any kind of engine technology might suddenly leap forward and, hey, we can do this now. But then, and you think about it, even if they were there for forever, 
on, on Mars. Communications are still going to be there. Granted, it's going to be a delay mm-hmm. in communications, but you look at the likes of Yuri's Night, which was designed so that anybody that's off-world can celebrate at the same time as somebody on Earth. Mm-hmm. And all be at one with this moment in time celebrating the achievements in space or human achievement in space and at that point they probably won't feel so distant yeah so it's all good yeah it's all good well as long as we're talking about things like the space station well you know that the space station has actually had an inflatable room it's not meant to be any kind of permanent structure well they've had it up there for a while and they like it so it's now been on the space station for about a year. Uh, it's the Bigelow Expandable Activity Module. And so far it has passed key structural tests. And they now believe that it's capable of surviving in low Earth orbit for an even longer period of time. So what did they call it? The Bigelow Expandable Activity Module. That makes it sound like a bouncy castle. <laughs> I mean, it's inflatable, so it kind of, you know, it is. So uh, NASA announced that it intends to extend its lifetime. Initially, it was only supposed to be there for two years, but now they say they want to extend the lifetime for uh, three years uh, with two additional one-year options beyond that. So this little inflatable habitat could be on the station into the early 2020s. So right now, it's primarily used just for storage. It's storing about 130, what they say, cargo transfer bags, as they call them, um, laboratory materials, and, and other such things. So they use the bags also to declutter the space station. So right now, it's, uh, like I said, they expect to have it on for a few more years, and not only that, but they can now collect more data about how it works in microgravity. So it not only has a function for the space station itself, the company that makes it now can gather more data about it so they can make the next version more resilient. Now, for people out there that are thinking to themselves, um, I was just joking about the bouncy castle thing. Yes, it is inflatable, but when it gets into the, the non-atmosphere, as it were, the actual sides of this thing actually go pretty rock solid. They're, it's a solid substance around it. Um, and once the air comes out of it, it, it it's nothing again. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's not like anything inflatable that we have here. <laughs> it's not like a lilo or whatever you call them on uh, in the swimming pool or anything like that it's uh, <laughs> it is out in space that inflatable mass becomes hard so it would be the equivalent of being the metals and the alloys that you have on a normal spacecraft and if you think about it probably thicker in many respects because you look how thin the walls are on a spacecraft with something that's inflatable you've got a wall then you've got a load of air and then you've got another wall. So it's actually safer, I would have thought. You'd think. This is really critical for any kind of Mars exploration. Hey, they need a new room. Set up another inflatable room. Mm-hmm. And then you can just coat it in the materials that are on the, the planet's surface mm-hmm. um, to protect them from the radiation. Yep. So, yeah, that's cool. I'm rubbing off on you. <laughs> I'm rubbing off on you. You said that's cool. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you know it, you love it, you can't live without it. This is TGP Normal. Nominal! Damn! Scientists have announced a breakthrough with an ion thruster that could be one day used to take humans to Mars. It's called the X3 thruster and a type of ion propulsion known as Hall 
thrust out. I read that as Hal at the mu- uh, at first. I thought, well, that's not good. Never call anything Hal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, this technology is alluring because it can theoretically achieve higher speeds than a conventional chemical propulsion. In a series of tests at NASA's Glenn Research Center, researchers said they had now achieved a record power output for the Hall thruster, opening new avenues for research. We have shown that the X3 can operate at over 100 kilowatts of power. Alec Gallimore, the project's lead and the Dean of Engineering at the University of Michigan, it generated 5.4 newtons of thrust, which is the highest level of thrust achieved by any plasma thruster to date. The previous record was 3.3 newtons. Iron thrusters are alluring because they promise high thrust with little fuel input, with little propellant needed they can theoretically operate for much longer than conventional thrusters achieving a much higher speed we've tested it out quite a few times as well the longest running is on nasa's dawn spacecraft which is currently in orbit around the dwarf planet of Ceres, um, which was launched in 2007 however that has a thrust of just 90 micronewtons that's 0.00009 newtons <laughs> Hall thrusters offer quite a bit more than that. (laughs) They involve accelerating plasma at extremely high speeds. Electrons are used to bump into atoms, normally of xenon gas. This knocks off more electrons, producing positive ions and thrust. Slowly over time, this can continually increase the speed of craft. In theory, a hull thruster could get a spacecraft up to 40 kilometres, 25 miles per second, eight times faster than a chemical propulsion spacecraft with a top speed of five kilometres, three miles per second. Thus, they're hugely promising for a spacecraft. If used on manned missions to Mars, for example, the spacecraft could require less propellant and thus be more easily launched into orbit. However, Gallimore noted that such engines would need a lot of power which is why the x3 thruster is so promising by using a bigger thruster the team said they can multiply channels of plasma rather than just one single channel called a nested channel this could allow for these high speeds to be achieved this is not the only iron thruster research being conducted because nasa has several other projects there is all on the go to try and improve the methods of space flight maybe the first humans that go to mars will have a revolutionary ion thruster to thank for it. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> now, it'll got... be amazing when we get a TIE fighter. Uh, yeah. And we hear that screeching. Go- well, okay, you can't hear it in space, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. But this is saying this is going to have more than one channel, so it's going to have a multiple channels, whereas a TIE fighter has only, it's, it's got a twin ion thruster. This is going Well, to... they said multiple. Two is multiple. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to have a lot more than two. <laughs> but yeah, something like that would be amazing. You no, know, that's cool. Because that's what we really need. We need some new engine to get us out there faster and farther. That's what's holding us back right now. Mm-hmm. Hey, any any advancement in that is going to be a good thing. I've, I've actually got a photograph of um, looking at it straight on as it's being fired. And uh, you remember the old cigarette lighters that you used to get in cars? Yeah, yeah, the little spiral Yeah, so it used to be all red, glowing red in the middle. Mm -hmm. Imagine that in blue. That's what this thruster looks like. 
It kind of looks like a target that you'd use for um, archery. They've got that kind oh, okay. of kind of thing, but in okay, blue, I, kind I of um, like in oh, tr- wow. in Tron Tron blue. <laughs> yeah, Tron blue. Look at that. That's cool. Yeah, electric blue. I think they call it. Then something like that. So, yeah, something like that. A little neon blue. That's very reminiscent of uh, Cherenkov radiation mm. when they have a nuclear reactor underwater. Yeah. That looks cool. I like that. It's really nice, isn't it? <laughs> That's one of those things you leave on, uh, leave a model of that on your wall as a nightlight. Yeah, that would be good, wouldn't it? <laughs> wow. I'd certainly light up the room. Oh, yeah, I see what you mean. There it is when they're setting it into place. And it does. It looks like a big bullseye target. Mm-hmm. That's neat. Surprised we haven't heard anything about that uh, impossible EM drive lately. Yeah, it keeps rearing its head every now and then, but... You know, the naysayers, uh, I don't get them. I don't get why they are naysayers. Because that, I do and I don't. That's what uh, science is all about. That's the part that irks me. It's like it's one thing to come out and say that it's impossible. That's fine based on what we currently know it's impossible, but we don't know everything. Let them run it through its paces. And when even NASA's coming back and saying, uh, yeah, we found something, and we've taken into account all the stuff that you say shouldn't be, you know, a factor, uh, yeah, you know, there's something there. And I get the naysayers, and I, I understand the whole thing of, oh, what's the phrase they use? Extraordinary ideas require extraordinary evidence or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. I get it. I get it. Especially something like this. Don't just dismiss it. You know what it's about, the naysayers. The reason why they're naysayers is because they have previously written papers on stuff and this may debunk their papers and they don't want that (laughs) well I mean um, unless their papers were very specifically saying and this is why EM drives are impossible even at that wouldn't it be better to say you know what we were wrong, and this is a really cool development. Get the egos out. Yeah, you know, it's, 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 egos what it come, out it's what it comes down to, probably, egos. You're right there. So, I don't know. But on the other hand, they haven't come out and said, no, we have explicitly been able to prove that all those other readings were wrong. So, until they come out and say that, they're probably still working on it, but... Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, other priorities. And Until someone's been told to disband it completely which they haven't been, right. um, they're going to keep looking at it. It's not going to go away anytime soon. Yep. It would be nice to, to hear more about it. Not that it would change anything, but just to see what goes on with it. It's official that Pluto's various features now have names. The International Astronomical Union has officially approved 14 names for the surface features on Pluto, including, of course, Tom Baragio. Sputnik Planitia is now the smoother part of the large heart. It's come up with a bunch of other ones. Bernie Elliott, uh, Virgil Fossey, Hayabusa Terra, one that I am absolutely not even going to try to pronounce, Jangawool Fossey. Something like that? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. Some of them should already be familiar to, to people because, the obviously, the Tombaugh Regia, that's what it's been called since the start. Well, that's finally become official. So these were all submitted for I, IAU approval by the New Horizons team. And, uh, obviously, the scientists came up with some of those names themselves, which makes sense. And others were proposed by members of the public. Two of them are, are Tenzig Montes and Hillary Montes, which were given to the, the water ice mountain ranges on Pluto in honor of Tenzig Norgay and Edmund Hillary, for, obviously, for climbing Everest. Mountains, yeah. So, let's see. Other names celebrate Japan's Hayabusa, asteroid probe, Voyager spacecrafts, and so forth. So... 
It's now got a bunch of official names to all of those features that we saw on that incredible flyby. But sorry, Mark, it's still not a planet. <laughs> I had to throw that in. If we can get hold of Alan Stern, I dare you to say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's hard. It is really hard to look at that and think, oh, that is so awesome. How can that not be a planet? But uh, it's not up to us. Talking of Alan Stern, he's actually been issuing people that he holds in high regard, actually, globes of Pluto with the new names on them. Oh, nice. So he's been giving them out as gifts. Now you got me curious. I'm Let's see. I'm just curious if it, if they're available commercially. I would imagine they would be. Okay, and it's also 100 bucks. All right, okay. Yeah. I think I'll pass. <laughs> My science shop has one on there. 12 inch in diameter, and it's obviously using the camera footage from the, the New Horizons flyby on it. So it looks gorgeous. I'm not paying 100 bucks for it. <laughs> Sorry. Hell, if I'm going to pay 100 bucks for anything science-related, it's going to be the uh, duplicates of the gold records that went up on the Voyager spacecraft. That I'll pay 100 bucks for. The last time we, we spoke about it, I put a video up on the show notes of a, a lady that's heavily into space, and she ordered one of these sets of records. And she, should I say, sets of vinyl. <laughs> what else are records? The youngsters... If you call it a record, they haven't got a clue what you're talking about. If you call it a vinyl, they know what you're talking about. Okay, maybe that's a British thing. I don't know. <laughs> I don't. You know, on uh, YouTube, you get all these un unboxing videos and oh, stuff. Yeah. She's done an unboxing video of her receiving the record sets. Yeah, they do look pretty spectacular. They do. Unfortunately, now we're in that time of the year where my wife gets mad at me because... Generally, you know, I'm at a point in my life where if there's something I want, I'll just go get it, which just ticks her off because then it's like, and then Christmas comes around and I have no idea what to get you because you get what you want. <laughs> so I think, I think I'm just going to put this on my wish list and yeah. <laughs> give her an opportunity to get it first. <laughs> in a small factory a couple of miles away from Los Angeles International Airport, Tim Ellis and Jordan Noon have spent the past two years working to build a rocket using only 3D printers. Their startup company, called Relativity Space Incorporated, is betting that removing humans from the manufacturing equation will make rockets way cheaper and faster to produce. The going rate for a rocket launch is about $100 million. Relativity says that in four years, its price will be $10 million. The 3D printing and automation of rockets is inevitable, says Ellis, the chief executive officer. Basically, it's molten metal shaped into a single part, and that makes it less vulnerable to wear and tear than a bunch of pieces fitted together. 3D printing tends to be slower and more expensive than old-fashioned welding. Relativity decided the solution was to build their own printer, or printers. The printers are among the largest ever consisting of an 18-foot-tall robotic arm equipped with lasers that can melt a steady stream of aluminium wire into liquid metal for shaping. So it's like the ones we use 
normally with the plastic filament, mm-hmm. but with aluminium filament in it instead. Ellis and Noon say that a handful of the arms can work together to create the rocket's entire body as a single piece, guided by custom software that monitors their speed and the metal's integrity. They haven't performed that task yet, but the printers have already made a 7-foot-wide, 14-foot-tall fuel tank in a few days and an engine in a week and a half. Relativity says the whole rocket can be built within a month if the company makes good on the promise of its technology. By comparison, the most efficient rocket-making processes today requires hundreds of people working for many months. Alison Noon met together as undergraduates at the University of Southern California where they spent their free time working on a rocket as a part of the aerospace club that they belong to. After graduation, Alice went to work at Blue Origin and successfully lobbied to increase the company's use of 3D printed metal parts. Noon took a job with SpaceX, (laughs) where he worked mostly on engine design. The two started dreaming up their company during late-night telephone conversations, often whilst at least one of them was coming home from work. We put these spreadsheets together to figure out why rockets were still so expensive. The fact is that 80 to 90% of the cost is labour. The printer arms do the startup's heavy lifting, streams 8 inches worth of liquid metal per second onto the garbage can-sized turntable that looks like a futuristic potter's wheel. And in a few hours, the laser's immense heat has kicked the temperature at the top of the factory to 140 degrees Fahrenheit. Ellis and Noon's team keep things from getting too humid on the ground by covering the laser machines with nylon tents originally meant for indoor marijuana growers. <laughs> okay. Near the back of the factory, Relativity is tinkering with alloys to make its metals better suited for 3D printing and to be able to combine more of the rocket's hull and inner workings. The space shuttle had 2.5 million moving parts, says Ellis. We think SpaceX and Blue Origin have got that down to maybe a hundred thousand moving parts per rocket we want to get it down to a thousand moving parts fewer than a car relativity is running lean with just 14 full-time employees in june it successfully test-fired its printed engine at nasa's facility in mississippi by mid 2020 the company plans to print a 90 foot tall seven foot wide rocket that can carry 2,000 pounds into orbit the founders say it will fly in 2021 at that size and the 10 million pound launch price the rocket could take smallish corporate satellites into orbit for far less than government-run space agencies charge. Hmm. Uh, in other words, NASA, without calling it NASA. Uh, Pretty uh, much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, It also says that both Blue Origin and SpaceX are run by billionaires with a knack for making things cheaper. So they haven't got that uh, luxury behind them. Relativity won't be the first lean rocket startup on the market because we've also got that Rocket Lab company, the the one that launched from New Zealand. Mm -hmm. They are going to be launching commercial launches in a matter of months, charging clients $5 million a flight and a handful of other rocket startups are set to follow in the next two years it's a busy time in the industry there's a lot coming up but i kind of like this idea i do like that i mean it they're obviously going to be limited they can't go for any of the bigger ones so it it makes sense that they're going to focus on the smaller markets but yeah why not get a rocket up there and you know what depending on what the material is if they could get it back and recycle it Mm -hmm. that could be even better 
I, I like the way they're experimenting with other alloys and things to come up with new alloys to work better with the 3D printers. Yeah, this, this is fascinating stuff. Some days. Hey, how's your 3D printer going? It's getting there. I've been running a few tests on a few things. Um, I've now got one of the heating ventricles in it now, so it's getting the three planes working together, if you like. Yeah. So I've got my X and Y working. It's the other one that's not working with it properly as of yet. So a few more things I've got to work is with. Is that a software thing? Is that a, an adjustment thing? It's, it's a bit of both. Mm. Uh, I've got some things I've got to adjust physically on it and then run tests through the software. So. I need to get my hands on one of those because i know that my kids are interested in that kind of stuff i'm so thrilled that my 10 year old daughter when i put this uh this saturn 5 together she's just like oh i want one she thought this was a space shuttle so that's what she was calling it i was like no 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 no. let me show you the space shuttle and i was playing videos of it launching and landing and she was totally amazed by it so that'd be really awesome if my youngest daughter ever decides to do something with nasa and and space and rockets and all that good stuff that would be so cool oh you know what wow i did not intend this but this is a great segue even though i hate segues <laughs> um i do i hate especially like the ones you hear on the radio because oh, they are man. so corny and canned it's like really really i did have this article anyway my youngest daughter is a girl scout as well so the girl scouts are going to start implementing NASA space merit badges. Badges will be implemented in 2019, and uh, they can earn merit badges for designing robots, uh, developing skills as a home scientist, studying the sky, or becoming a computer expert. Well, (laughs) she's got an in-house source right here on that one. Mm -hmm. I could teach her whatever she wants to know. Honey, you want to build a computer? You made me an excuse to go buy buy stuff off Newegg. Now, this, this article is written two girls who are going to the Girl Scouts so um, says you know, soon you'll be able to shoot for the stars. Uh, the organization Girl Scouts of the USA has partnered with NASA and the SETI Institute to develop a series of space science badges. Uh, the program is called Reaching for the Stars NASA Science for Girl Scouts. It will encompass six badges covering astrophysics, planetary science, and heliophysics. 90 Girl Scout councils across the U.S. have already received kits designed to promote both space sciences and uh, eclipse studies. Obviously, that's that was a big thing this year. So the Girl Scouts hopes that new badges will help to encourage girls to pursue their interest in science, technology, engineering, and math. Sorry, maths. To please the rest of the world. <laughs> it will be open to all levels of participants and will include badges ranging from space science explorer for younger girls to space science expert for older, more advanced scouts. And as I said, they're hoping to implement that in 2019. Less than two years. Mm-hmm. So who knows? Hey, maybe my uh, maybe my daughter will be interested in that one. Pretty amazing, considering the kind of things that those kind of organizations were doing when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, I know. But it's, it's, I don't know. To me, why didn't they do this years ago? You know, why just now? This would have been amazing, you know, back in, even in the shuttle era. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I guess it's better than it not happening at all. You know, it's good to finally start to get girls interested in science and technology and, and all of that. Instead of, you know, oh, well, girls do pink and they play with dolls. No, why should they? So it's it's good that they're doing it. I just kind of wish they did it before now. Because maybe my daughter might already have one of those uh, badges. But, you know, whatever. They're, they're, it's a good thing it's happening. Long time coming. So just guess we should just be happy for that but hey you know that computer science one (laughs) boy could i help her with that yeah they might even get you in as a badge tester they probably could yeah i I think it would be good 
if you could get involved in that because I mean I'm, I'm sure they're I don't know what they what do they call it a unit or a, a troop the actual troop it's a troop is a troop mm-hmm. all right because yeah it's the same here knowing that you're involved in that kind of work <laughs> may may ask you to come in on board. I'd have no problem with that. You know, I'll I'll even bring parts to show how a computer's put together. I would love, or even even Raspberry Pi. That's the way to do it. That's the way. Because I know it's it's pretty basic, but you can do quite a lot with it. I mean, yeah, it's pretty basic, but it's still. I mean, you install Linux on there, it's still a computer. Hmm. Definitely. And, and the new Raspberry Pis are they are they quad core? The Raspberry Pi three? They're the quad core or opti core? I'm not sure on that, to be honest. I've been looking for an excuse to build one. <laughs> I can't come up with one. <laughs> Another reason why we should get over to uh, Uranus and Neptune. It's been theorized for a long time that the extreme pressure in their atmospheres could squeeze hydrogen and carbon into diamonds so that it would literally rain diamonds on those two planets. But now, thanks to an experiment conducting by an international team of scientists, this diamond rain was actually recreated under laboratory conditions for the first time. They were actually able to have it rain diamonds. The study uh, recently appeared in the Journal of Nature Astronomy. It, it is from the Helmholtz Zentrum Dresden Rossendorf Institute of Radiation Physics. Okay. <laughs> now, that should have an acronym. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, except it would be H Z D. Sorry, uh, Z D R I R. You could pronounce that. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to try. <laughs> so uh, let's see. But it included team members from the uh, Slack National Accelerator Laboratory, well, which is part of Stanford University, uh, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, and UC Berkeley. Uh, again, the whole idea is that just the pressure that is in those atmospheres is enough to convert hydrogen and carbon into diamonds. In this case, they actually used plastic, and so it's a simulated compound, but it's formed of methane, which is, of course, you know, one carbon atom bound to four hydrogen atoms, so the same basic elements are there, and the presence of this is is there on both Uranus and Neptune, so that's why they're both, their unique color of blue, it's because of this element. So, they used that to do it, and they recreated the conditions under which it would have that amount of pressure. They used an optical laser so the, the optical laser created shock waves, which accurately simulated the temperature and pressure conditions at various intermediate layers of Uranus and Neptune. So, you know, they'd start the first shock smaller and slower, like it's just entering the atmosphere, and then all of a sudden over, being overtaken by a second shock. And when all of that happened, the pressure at its peak, little tiny diamonds began to form. So they were actually able to see these little diamonds forming in real time using this experiment. Now, hey, if you need a reason for corporate America to get up there, greed, man, look at all the diamonds they could get. Yeah, definitely. The price of diamonds would absolutely plummet, so maybe that's a reason why it wouldn't happen either. Mm -hmm. Besides the pressure, you know, it'd kill you to do that. (laughs) But what they found is that nearly every carbon atom in the original plastic sample was incorporated into a small diamond structure. They were able to do it, and uh, granted, it's obviously until we actually get there, they're not going to know for sure, but it definitely was enough to at least confirm that the hypothesis, you know, it it has some, what's the phrase I want to use? (laughs) Yeah, it has some weight behind it. There you go. Actually, yeah, it's got uh, 10,000 miles of atmospheric pressure on it. (laughs) So that was cool. I like that they used lasers for it, too. They used lasers to create shock waves. Lasers are getting used for quite a lot of things that you wouldn't expect them to be used for these days. Now, talking of um, precious stuff... (laughs) 
Did you, did you, did you uh, see the, the story about the, uh, the scientists have observed two stars slamming into each other? I did. Now, that's not the only thing that is amazing about what they've seen, is that these stars slamming into each other send out a huge amount of gold in what they call an alchemical explosion. The super-dense stars crash together 130 million light-years away, spewing out precious metals and other heavy elements like platinum and uranium. And experts say the event has kick-started a new chapter in astrophysics and confirmed theories about the origin of the mysterious neutron stars. The huge explosion rocked the fabric of the universe, distorting space-time. That is a major discovery in itself, marking only the fifth time that gravitational waves have been spotted from Earth. Scientists didn't just hear the violent blast that caused the ripples in space-time, they were also able to use telescopes on satellites and on the ground to see the light and radiation that was being flung out of the explosion, which is known as a kilonova. And the information that is going to be uh, relied on for years as um, scientists learn more about the beginnings of such stars and even our entire universe every other gravitational wave detection has been traced to black holes crashing together in remote regions of the universe more than a billion light years away the new event though very distant was much closer and completely different in nature it was caused by colliding neutron stars the burnt out remnants of giant stars so dense that a teaspoon of their material on earth would weigh a billion tons. That's mind-blowing. Just goes to show how much space there actually is between atoms. Yeah, there is. We are not solid beings. Now, the two objects, each about 12 miles in diameter, stretched and distorted space-time as they spiraled towards each other and finally collided. Like ripples from a stone when it's thrown into a pond, the gravitational waves fanned out across the universe at the speed of light. They were picked up on Earth by two incredibly sensitive detectors, one in Washington and one in Louisiana, operated by the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, or LIGO. It was here the first discovery of the gravitational waves were made in September of 2015, confirming a prediction made by Albert Einstein 100 years ago and earning three pioneers of the project with a Nobel Prize. Two seconds after the LIGO detection, a burst of gamma rays from the neutron star collision was captured by NASA's Fermi Space Telescope. Astronomers around the world quickly turned their telescopes around and their dishes towards a small patch of space in the southern sky and also saw the flash across the visible and invisible light spectrums. Analysis of the light revealed something really astonishing. The manufacture of gold on a cosmic scale as well as other heavy elements. Dr. Joe Lynham from the University of Warwick, one of many British scientists involved, said the, the exquisite observations obtained in a few days showed that we were observing a kilonova, an object whose light was powered by extreme nuclear reactions. This tells us that heavy elements like gold or platinum in jewellery are cinders forged in a billion degree remnants of a merging neutron star. So just thinking about having a ring on your finger, a gold ring on your finger, is just these little bits of dust that have been in space and have been caused by two neutron stars crashing together. We are made of comet dust. Yeah. The origins of gold and other heavy elements have 
been a long-standing mystery, but the recent evidence has suggested that the colliding neutron stars could have had a hand in their creation. A third gravitational wave facility called Virgo, near Pisa in, in Italy, also registered a faint signal from the events, allowing scientists to triangulate the, its position. The neutron star collision took place 130 million light-years away in a relatively old galaxy called NGC 4993. When the gravitational rays began their journey across space, dinosaurs still roamed the Earth. The gravitational wave signal, named GW170817, was detected at 1.41pm UK time on August the 17th. LIGO's detectors, consisting of L-shaped tunnels with arms of 2.5 miles long, used laser beams bouncing off mirrors to measure the movement across a distance 10,000 times smaller than the width of a proton. This is a kernel of an atom. A tight lid was kept on the findings until the publication of uh, a series of papers in journals including Nature, Nature Astronomy and the Physical Review Letters. International researchers expect to spend many months trawling through the mountains of data. Yeah, I bet they are. Um, (laughs) One question already answered is the origin of short-duration gamma-ray bursts. Gamma-ray bursts, or GRBs, are marked by an eruption of gamma rays lasting milliseconds to several minutes and are the most powerful explosions known to science. Scientists now know that one type of GRB is generated when neutron stars collide. Dr. Samantha Oates, also from the University of Warwick, said the discovery has answered three questions that astronomers have been puzzling for over the decades. What happens when neutron stars merge? What causes this short duration gamma ray burst? And where the heavy metal elements like gold are made? In a space of about a week, all three of these questions were answered. Dr. David Schumacher, spokesman for the LIGO Scientific Collaboration and senior research scientist at U.S. Massachusetts Institute of Technology's Kavli Institute for Astrophysics and Space Research, said, from informing detailed models of the inner workings of the neutron stars and the emissions they produce to more fundamental physics, such general relativity makes this such a rich event is a gift that keeps on giving. That is a lot to take in. Again, there's just so much we don't know, and we're just now finding out. It was on a a TV show about it the other day, and there was these guys watching this going, what do you mean gold came from space? And I said, well, where the hell do you think it came from? Uh, Jewelers. (laughs) 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 Sounds like a bad comedy skit. I kind of get it, though. Did anyone ever really think about where gold comes from? No, it's just kind of there. We know about diamonds, carbon atoms forming into, you know, diamonds because of pressure and time and so forth. Has anybody ever really thought of where does gold come from? Or we just took for granted because it's there. Well, you think of gold dust and things that you see when you pan in for gold. I mean, it's in the ground. The ground has been formed by years and years of other rock formations and this and the other. Rocks have probably come from space at some point and that these things are encrusted with all these different elements and it just really makes perfect sense yeah it does because i never really thought of it that way before because again just taking for granted well it's there the european union might ban the use of toxic satellite propellant hydrazine as early as 2021 which would present a major setback for the european bloc space industry 
Priya Fernando, head of the propulsion design group at Airbus Defence and Space, said that if the space sector gets an exception to continue using hydrazine, the cost of the fuel would double in Europe, which would seriously handicap the EU space manufacturers. Fernando said that the EU space industry might lose up to 2 billion euros or 2.35 billion dollars per year as a result of operations being moved to countries where no restrictions apply. They were speaking at the Space Tech Expo Europe in Brenham in Germany um, and they said that the alternative monopropellants such as hydroxylaminitrate or... Uh, ammonium detrimide are nowhere near ready to replace hydrazine in the near future. Now, this may be beneficial to the UK because we won't be in the EU by then, so that we can <laughs> continue using it and manufacturing. So, it, financially, it might be better off for the UK. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, that could cripple some of the companies in the EU in the space industry. That's not a good one. There's also another story from the same expo. Europe's aerospace industry is getting ready for NASA's proposed deep space gateway, hoping Europe will have its own module at the Lunar Orbit Space Station resupplied by a European space transport system. It's possibly going to be the same one that uh, that used to be going to the space station. During a session on the final day of the Space Tech Expo Europe, Frederic Mason, a uh, engineer at the French Space Agency, or CNES, said France is already considering ways to increase the performance of the upcoming Ariane 6 launcher to make it fit to contribute to humankind's next big space endeavour. They're already looking ahead for these deep space uh, gateways you know if they can continue doing the resupply missions to it as well that would be fantastic i mean um, nasa are, are, are using the uh, the service modules from the old european resupply for attaching to orion when it eventually goes up on the uh, space launch system be interesting to see where that goes nice oh i just missed something on there actually Frederick Mason also said, we are preparing a demonstrator for a reusable first stage for the Ariane 6, and that's going to be called Callisto. Mm. But we think the most efficient thing would be to add a solar electric space tug as an additional stage. Such a space tug concept is already being studied by Airbus Defence and Space. Solar space tug? Yeah, solar electric space tug. No, just, just looking at that. It makes sense. Yeah, just like in Star Trek, having those little tiny ships buzzing around, mm-hmm. doing what they need to do. So, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. That's what they were talking about for Mars. Mm-hmm. You know, actually having the platform, a space platform above Mars, and then having the astronauts go down on the surface for two weeks at a time to do missions, then get up off the surface. Yeah, so they're going to so, need something to get them there and back. Yeah. So... Yeah, that makes sense. They still need to shape them like the little Star Trek tugs from, you know, the motion picture. <laughs> Yeah. You guys had a rocket launch back in September. Yeah, Star Chaser. Uh, I'm I'm trying to get the the guy who runs Star Chaser on the show. Oh, that'd be uh, amazing. He is interested in talking with us. Uh, he is following TGP Nominal on Facebook. Oh, uh, nice. And uh, yeah, so I am in talks, and uh, with a bit of luck, we can we can get uh, get him on on the show. 
Cool. So, yeah, all right. So, uh, let's see. This happened in Otterburn in Northumberland. Mm-hmm. And, uh, what, well, this is the next step, hopefully, is a rocket that will have a, uh, it'll be capable of lifting a capsule that can actually carry human beings. So, this was the Skybolt 2. Uh, let's see. It, it uh, went up from Northumberland before breaking up and descending to Earth by parachute 30 seconds later. So apparently it, it split it apart into separate pieces, which is one of the tests that they were trying to do. Uh, two of the three parachutes deployed. And this one was an 8.3-meter rocket. The next one that they want to do is a 12-meter rocket, and they expect to launch that one within 18 months. But uh, obviously it, it's nothing compared to my, ah, oh, hello, little Saturn V Lego. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's nothing compared to a Saturn V, but, I mean, it, that was the largest rocket that was launched from Britain yeah. since 1971. Uh, yeah, that wasn't the one in 71 wasn't actually launched. It wasn't launched in the UK though. That was launched by the UK, but it was launched in, oh, okay. yeah, in yeah, Australia. Yeah, the rocket was yeah the the rocket was the largest Britain has sent into the atmosphere yeah. since 1971. Yeah, got it. So the unmanned rocket carried a payload including video cameras and a stuffed toy dog on loan from... Okay, I need your help on this because this is your territory. Morecam? Morecam. 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 See? You guys, I'll tell you. <laughs> from uh, Morecam Bay Primary School. Yeah, Morecam. Uh, and it reached a maximum height of 4,000 feet. It, there you go. Yeah. I'm surprised you didn't mention this. I, I was hoping to possibly get him on the show before the launch but i knew that wasn't going to happen they want the next rockets to be a mixture of solid and liquid fuel and the solid part will come from recycled tires with aluminum in it and you know i remember seeing something long it's got to be at least 15 or 20 years ago maybe not that long but it feels like that anyway you know as we get older time seems to fly faster and it was a solid fuel rocket that was being experimented and it used recycled tires and it was smokeless I remember seeing the, the, the test firing of it, and it was this nice thin flame, and it had produced no smoke whatsoever. That would be neat to see if they could do that. Our um, original rocket, uh, well, we've had two main ones. We've had the Blue Streak, and mm-hmm. we had the, the Black Arrow. Yep. Uh, the Black Arrow, they called the lipstick rocket. What? Because the tip was bright red, and it looked like a lipstick. Okay, that's kind of weird. <laughs> the fuel that it used was very unusual. It was hydrogen peroxide. Wow, really? The same stuff that you used to do your hair with. Yeah. Obviously, a, a bigger amount, and it is a fantastic fuel to use for rock, rocket uh, launches. Well, I mean, it makes sense because everything it needs is right there. Mm-hmm. And it, it works perfectly. This is the thing that really annoyed me about Black Arrow is... That that was the point that the, the the British government decided we weren't going to start sending rockets at any time soon. They actually cancelled the program whilst it was in transit to Australia. Are you serious? Yeah. Wow. And the scientists said, "Nope, we're on our way now. We're going to do it. We're going to launch it. We've paid for it." And it was bit of sweet thing, really. It was sweet that yeah. they managed to get it to launch perfectly but bitter that they weren't able to research into it any further. And that pretty much killed off British rocketry. Wow. On the way to doing, they said, nope, don't. Why? That, uh, well, whatever. But it, the, the, the scientists and the engineers just went, 
uh, we didn't hear that. Yeah. Excuse me. <laughs> Sorry, communications failure. <laughs> but fair, fair play to him, I say, for actually continuing to do it. It's like, no, we're going to launch this. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if it was already paid for and... Yeah, that doesn't make any sense, but oh, yeah. whatever. The history of British rocketry is it's a a roller coaster of of a, of a story. It really is, and then it then then it just got killed off. At that time, well, we were the third the third biggest uh, space nation. But hey, you know, if if he has his way, you guys will be getting back on the map. For oh that. yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, he's so passionate about what he does, and he's got a good team behind him. And he follows us. That makes him even better. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've actually got, I don't want to call it a real photograph because it's a composite, but we have a constructed image of the red supergiant star Antares. All right. So it's it's a photo, as as they're calling it. Uh, It is the best ever captured photo of a star other than our own sun. So the image shows the surface, which apparently is very tumultuous, revealing a bunch of turbulence in the atmosphere and so forth, and hinting at a mysterious process that is churning away violently inside the stellar mass. That Yeah, that's obviously what they said. So it's 620 light years from Earth, and it's in the constellation of Scorpio. It's roughly 12 times uh, the mass and 700 times the diameter of our own sun. So it's one of the largest and brightest that we have in in the whole galaxy, not just in the recent area. But it's also nearing the end of its life, and that's one of the reasons why they're keeping an eye on it. They expect it to go supernova in a few thousand years. But the European Southern Observatory's very large telescope interferometer, that's in Chile, and that revealed the detail of the star's surface and, and that sort of thing. So it directly measures the gas motions in the extended atmosphere, which is one of the things that they've been trying to figure out regarding its turbulence. So they've been monitoring that, but it actually is made up of four telescopes, which is a combination of 27-foot telescopes and some smaller six-foot auxiliary telescopes. But combined, they collect enough infrared light to create a virtual telescope 660 feet wide. Wow. Yeah, so this thing is big. And uh, they took multiple images from those, and obviously over time and so forth, and were able to come up with what is effectively the clearest photo of the stars other than our own sun. So they said that it appears to be very turbulent, which obviously if it's about to go supernova, that would make sense. Stars like the sun, convection flows of superheated gases bubble up from near the star's cores to the surface, like uh, you know, water in a boiling kettle. Comes up, The hot water comes up from the bottom and boils upward and so forth. But it cannot explain the atmosphere of Antares and why it's so turbulent, because the researchers are concluding that for atmospheres of red supergiants, that there must be something else going on that drives the motion of the material. And they still don't know that, but just being able to look at this photo and realize that it is more or less a photo, it's amazing to look at. It Think of, you know how you see in movies, like a desert sun is more of an orange than a yellow? Yeah. Just put in like some bands of darker orange in front of it. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much what it looks like. Oh, we've seen uh, pretty much a lot of that lately. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, you have, haven't you? <laughs> 
In fact, aren't those uh, Sahara sands that were making the sky look weird? Yeah, it was, yeah. And that was all caused by the last hurricane that you guys got. For some reason, we got the, the atmospheric pressures come from northern Africa. And, yeah, we had these, not a sandstorm, but uh, it, it blew over here. It was weird. Well, just Everything- the fact that you guys got hit by a hurricane, that's yep. weird. <laughs> Everything was tinted orange. The sun looked red. Mm. And then it just disappeared. It just went back to being what should have been grey at that time. Um, but, yeah, this tint of, of orange. Best way I can describe it, this is going back a few years now, Beverly Hills Cop 2. Oh, wow, okay. They had those oil mules going backwards and forwards and everything was orange around there which mm-hmm. which you get quite regularly around those areas it kind of looked like that it was bizarre it's not something you normally get in the uk no but that's just funny to think that it was saharan dust that did. smoke i could kind of understand because i'm on the east coast and if there are really bad wildfires like in in western canada mm-hmm. sometimes we'll get some of that smoke over us even though we're three thousand miles away yeah that i could understand but sand and, That's and, just weird. And people were finding grains of sand on top of their cars. <laughs> wow. And that's to, crazy. And to think that sand has come from Africa. Yeah. <laughs> So that's about all we've got time for on the news front. When we come back after this short break, we will have our resident astronomer with us to talk about everything that's going on in the skies for November. Ever since our species first looked up at the sky, we've dreamed of reaching Mars. Back in 2029, that dream became real when the first humans set foot on the red planet. And in a few months, a new group of astronauts will make the journey. It's one of humanity's most ambitious undertakings, the direct result of a decades-long global space race and of a joint mission created to extend human exploration to the farthest reaches of our solar system. This is the story of Ares, our greatest adventure. Behold the Hermes, the most complex and expensive machine ever built. We only built one, and it remains harbored in low Earth orbit between missions. Astronauts rely on shuttles to travel up to Hermes, and from there, they set sail on a perfect controlled cruise. But make no mistake, this is no easy journey. The trip to Mars is as dangerous and challenging as anything we've ever tried. The average journey checks in at 140 million miles. And throughout the trip, Hermes and its crew are bombarded by cosmic radiation that would irreversibly damage their DNA, if not for the ship's protection. And if that isn't enough, solar flares, asteroids, and meteoroids pose a catastrophic threat to the mission. One major strike could leave Hermes stranded in the hostile environment of space with no hope of rescue. Provided everything goes as planned, the Ares 3 crew will arrive in Martian orbit 124 days later, ready to descend to the surface. Once on Mars, 
they will spend a month in a habitat designed to protect them from low oxygen, high radiation, dust storms, and temperatures that can dip to 100 degrees below zero. Despite those challenges, the crew will thoroughly investigate the planet's biological history and its potential to cultivate and sustain life. Depending on what they learn, Star Talk of the future may be posting to you from a permanent self-sustaining Martian colony, examining a new adventure that will take us even deeper into the stars above. Earth, a magnificent world to which we owe our creation, no longer seems destined to be our final resting place. Our adventure is just beginning. On behalf of StarTalk, we'd like to wish the Ares 3 crew a safe journey. Godspeed, Hermes. And as always, keep looking up. Blast off into the potosphere with TGP Nominal. Right, once again, I have Ross Hockham joining me from UK Astronomy. He's joining us across the ether. Uh, how are you doing, Ross? Yeah, very good, mate. Yourself? Yeah, fantastic. So you're going to tell us about the skies for November, but you've got some other ideas that um, you, you want to bring into the uh, segment, isn't it? Done it. The same sort of concept, really. So you've got the date and then what's happening sort of thing. But I've kind of thrown in... A bit more information about kind of this is an object. Why not have a look? This is going to be the object of the month, or you know, a constellation of the month, and things like that. So a little bit more information rather than just this is up. Have a look at it. So hopefully it might get people actually a bit more information and actually be able to go out and find this one object. So each month you've got something that you know something that you can go and see yourselves and try and find rather than just me going on about what's up. So I thought it might help people, and I'm hoping in the new year to then have that on our website. So then you'll be able to listen to me going on and then pop on the website and actually see how to find that object and find it. So I thought it might help a bit. It probably will be because actually seeing what you're looking for might make it a bit easier for people. Um, and this is something that we can look towards linking the whole thing together and um, evolving the whole thing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when I when I go out doing my astronomy, I like to have a picture of the object on either my iPad or something like that. So while I'm looking in the sky to try and find it, I know roughly where it is, but then I've got a picture where I can go, ah, that's what it looks like. Oh, that looks like it. That must be it. So you, you kind of then know because there's so many stars out there and things to see in different clusters you sometimes don't know what galaxy you're looking at because there'll be a whole group of them and to find a certain one can be really difficult exactly so um let's move forward and see what we've got at the moment the moon's kind of going towards being full which is great for looking at the moon but as i always say not good for me because i like deep sky stuff but yeah so it's a great time to get your binoculars out have a look at the full moon the larger craters and the mare i said but while you're there there's a great object, and uh, while you can have a look at it, it's called, uh, if you can find it, it's called, it's pretty much just mountains on the moon. So it's called Monte Apennus, which is actually named after the Apennine Mountains in Italy. And its uh, formation dates back to about 3.9 billion years, which sounds a lot, but they're actually really still relatively young compared to all the other features on the moon. And uh, this range can be found sort of southeast of a large mare called Imbrium which is Latin for sea of showers or rain, because our ancestors actually believed that there were seas and clouds and rain and that on the moon back in the day. So these things are all named after it. So if you look for that mare and then look to the southeast of it, that's where you'll find this mountain range. So I'll pop it on the website, as I said, 
at some point or it'll be in our events group and you can have a look there and actually see mountains on the moon and with a decent i mean you can see them with binoculars just about with a telescope they're absolutely amazing we've got the moon again but this time you're going to see how it kind of moves across the sky because it's going to glide through Taurus, which is like there's an asterism they call there, the Hyades or Hades. And it's one of the favourite asterisms of astronomers because it's quite bright. As I said, it's in the constellation Taurus the Bull. And this is going to be my constellation of the month because there is quite a bit there for you to find and it's up. It looks really cool. And if the moon's there, you'll know it's bang in the middle of it. So it's pretty much the shape of a triangle, which represents the bull's head which is kind of tilted, charging towards Orion the Hunter. And the star Aldebaran, or Aldebaran, is actually the bull's eye. And it's a really bright sort of yellowy red star. And it, it itself will actually be occulted as the moon moves through this cluster of stars. And it will go behind it and disappear, as will a few other stars. So it would be really good to go out for a few hours and have a look or pop in and out. Because you'll actually be able to see how the moon is actually moving against the background of stars. So they're not all moving together, they all move differently. This constellation is great because it also contains a famous crab nebula, which uh, it was actually recorded by Chinese astronomers as a guest star. So it actually was, they could see it during the day, this big bright star just suddenly appeared and it actually turned out to be a supernova. And it was in 1054. And as I said, they can see it during the day, but now it's actually more of a deep sky target. So those with scopes can try and find it. And it does kind of look like a crab's head. And it is actually the leftover from where that star blew up back then. All the gases are being thrown out and expanding across the universe, which I think is really cool to see. So you've got that there as a deep sky one. Now, if you've got binoculars, if you look slightly above Taurus, there's almost like if you've had an imaginary line going straight up, which you'll see if you look at the constellation on an app, uh, there's a bright group of stars that you can see with uh, your naked eye. And they're called the Pleiades, or Pleiades, and the Seven Sisters. And in Greek mythology, they were the seven daughters of Atlas, a titan who uh, believed they believed held up the sky. And which is funnily enough, what all our maps are now named after, mm -hmm. Atlases. They're kind of meant to be half-sisters of the Seven Sisters in the Hyades, or Hades, asterism. So almost like sisters of each other, because they're quite close together, and it has to be seven and seven. But modern astronomers say they're actually, they're not sisters. They're just a big group of stars that were formed in a huge cloud of dust about 100 million years ago. With binoculars, you'll see a lot more than just seven. There's just loads and loads there. And the cool thing about it is the Hyades are kind of almost ready, but the Pleiades are actually blue. So you've got a really good difference in colour there to have a look at. And they can both be seen with a naked eye. So you could look with both, which I think is great. And then if we move on to the 13th, going on into the morning now because uh, Venus is still up and Jupiter is now kind of crawling into the morning sky as well so it's still quite low and we're kind of further away from it in our orbit but on the 13th they're quite close so you can actually have a quick peek and maybe see them sitting with the naked eye and slowly throughout the month it's actually going to get higher and higher and higher and better to see in the morning and if we go to the next day the 14th uh, it's my favourite time of month because it's deep sky time and this means that the moon is kind of out of the way so uh, I'm going to go for objects of the month. This one, because it's deep sky, I have to look for something that, you know, scopes can get to. And seeing as it's November and bonfire night's approaching, I thought we'd try and look at a galaxy called the Fireworks Galaxy. And it's just off the constellation uh, Cygnus, the Swan, which is almost directly above us at the moment. And there's a star, I think it might be at its tail end, called Deneb. And uh, you can see it on an app. It will tell you the name of the stars. It's quite a famous one. And not too 
too far from that, below sort of is another constellation called Cepheus, which is a king. And there's a star there called Alderamin, or A-L-D-E-R-A-M-I-N, which I don't know how to pronounce this one because I've not really said it before. But I'm going to go for Alderamin because it sounds cool. Uh, and yeah, it's a spiral galaxy. Between these two stars, it's quite close to the second star in Cepheus. And we actually see it from almost like bird's eye view from the top. So it actually looks like a Catherine wheel in space. And that's where it gets its name from. So it looks like a firework spinning in space. And it's a really cool one to see. And especially it'll be dark as well. No moon in the way. So it's definitely a good one to have a look at, seeing as it's a time of year. And the next day, the 15th, for back to the morning. So if you stay up the night before and do an all-nighter, get some coffee in. Uh, if you're not managed to spot Mars... The moon is actually not far off from it in the morning. So as I stated in previous episodes, though, we're not really in a good orbital position until later next year to actually see detail in it. But before the sun rises, you may get a peak. You might be able to see it with a naked eye. It'll just be a little red dot, sort of a glob. And uh, if you get a scope on it, you will be able to see a little bit of it there. And then if you want to go for it again, you've got the 16th. And this is different. You've got the chance to see a minor planet and it's called Vesta. And using the moon again, which is always great to find, just to the left of the moon on that night, it's apparently within binocular range. So you can see it with binoculars. Now, for Vesta is one of the largest objects in the asteroid belt so it's actually within the asteroid belt that you're looking at it's between mars and jupiter this belt you should see a white dot and it'll be moving against the background of stars so you won't see it move as you're just watching it but if you look at it and then or if you can take a picture even better then maybe an hour later pop out again have another look you'll notice it would have moved slightly so you can actually see this chunk of rock moving through the space i think that's pretty cool even though it's just a white dot you sit there and think that's a big old chunk of rock just you know going around in an orbit Luckily, not hitting anything at the moment. You never know. Uh, <laughs> hopefully not. We've had a few near misses lately, haven't we? Uh, yeah, just a little bit. Yeah, so I think NASA have kind of been like, oh, yeah, we missed that one. It went past two days ago. <laughs> Thanks, they've, NASA. They've actually got um, early warning sensors at the National Space Centre in Leicester. Ah, so they do it there? Yeah. Oh, brilliant. We we'll have to go and tell them off then. What happened? <laughs> Why did you miss that one? Yeah, so uh, if we move on to the 17th and 18th, there's a meteor shower. It's not a massive one, but it's always worth having a peek. And it's called the uh, the Leonid meteors, which is in Leo. Uh, and they radiate from there. So if you find the constellation Leo, which is the lion. Now, the lion was rumoured to be the great Nemean lion that no spear nor arrow could ever harm and it was put there by the gods. Uh, and it was killed by Hercules, funnily enough, yet again, who saw the lion and decided that he was going to strip naked and wrestle it, as you do. And yeah, he killed it because he obviously took that no spear or arrow could harm it, so he used his bare hands. I'm not saying to anyone that that's advisable to wrestle lions, but he was kind of a demigod or something, wasn't he? So yeah. we'll have to let him off. Yeah, so while you're here in Leo, there's a fantastic group of three galaxies called the Leo Triplet, and it's around 35 million light years away. And if you look at the bottom of Leo, to the left there's a star, bottom left, almost where his back foot is. I think they're just around about there. You can get binoculars on, probably find them, get a scope on there, and it's really cool to see. You can see three galaxies in one field of view. So definitely have a look there if you can find it. And you never know, you might see a meteor or two fly over. If we carry on onto the 18th as well, it's a new moon. So even more time for astronomers to get out and actually look at the galaxies that I mentioned before and any nebula you want to have a look at. So 18th, definitely go out if you can, if it's a clear sky. And from then onwards, going to start slowly creeping back. But if you can, mid-month is the best time for us. Now, at the 20th, the moon is just to the right of Saturn as the sun sets. So if you haven't managed to find Saturn yet, that's a great time to do it. Again, we're not in a great position to see Saturn and its details, but 
why not go and have a look? You never know. Most of the planets are kind of in the sun's in the way for most of them at the moment until we get around the other side. So the only real planet that's good is uh, Uranus at the moment, which is just coming out of opposition and is up there. I think it's in Pisces at the moment. In the morning, you've got Venus, Mars, possibly Jupiter. So there's something for everyone every time. 24th is another morning thing. So if you didn't get to see Saturn on the 24th, Mercury reaches its greatest eastern elongation. So it's gone right to the edge of its orbit before it then starts going back towards the sun. And as I said again, you can see if Saturn's there, because on the 28th, Mercury and Saturn are pretty close together. So if you found Saturn with the moon, remember where it is, a couple of days later, go back to that spot and you might see two little white blobs, Mercury and Saturn. And as the sun sets, they're quite close. But as I mentioned before, it's bonfire night, isn't it? And because we said, let's have a look at the fireworks galaxy that I mentioned, it is a brilliant one to see. You've got to see it, especially in dark skies. If you look just to the right of the setting sun, you may spot a really bright star. And it's kind of one of the first ones that kind of appears at the moment and it's setting quite early but it's still there i had a look yesterday and it's called arcturus and it's in the constellation of boots or booties as some people like to say if you get a scope or binoculars onto that star you'll see it's quite ferocious it really does burn and it looks like flickering flames and it has all sorts of different colors you get yellow green all sorts of colors coming from it so it actually looks like a bonfire in the sky so you can go out and have a look at a bonfire in the sky and see a fireworks galaxy so i thought that was quite cool to finish off with for November seeing as everyone's going to be out enjoying that sort of thing so as I said this month's stuff we'll, I'll post it all on the Facebook group we've got an events page as well which is linked to it go on there feel free to chat to me I'm on there or anyone else we're a great friendly bunch you can email me at info at ukastronomy.org if I can help you in any way get out and see these things why not go for it it's good fun so Ross you've been out and about a lot lately because you, you, you just had a, an event at your local didn't you recently <laughs> Yeah, I did, yeah, yeah. I always say to people, you know you've made it when you've got a gig at your local pub. <laughs> <laughs> you know you're that, that's it, you're a celebrity. But yeah, it was uh, the Talbot Inn in Loughton, and I literally live five minutes down the road. I've been going there for about four years, and I got to know the landlord really well. He's a really nice bloke, Anthony, and his wife's lovely as well. She's actually the boss, she's the landlord. I always thought it was him, so I always call him the boss, but he's not. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they invited us to do an astronomy night because he's he's into photography and he goes to Tenerife quite often because he's got a home there and takes pictures of the sky and he wants to kind of learn how to get good pictures so he joined the group and then from that they said oh would you just come along and do a night and I did a talk about the solar system with the inflatables as always because they're always a winner I start the solar system and how you can see the planets and where they are at the moment to get them all excited and then afterwards I give them just a, a basic guide of astronomy to try and get them to think hang on a minute why don't I just go out and point my binoculars at the sky why don't I do that instead of looking at birds during the day it's night I might be able to see something I might be able to see a planet yeah it was a bad day to pick in a well in a way I had two other astronomers that were coming along bless them one of them had a family bereavement so he couldn't be there so I only had half the scopes that I would have had and the other guy got stuck in traffic so he couldn't be there so I turned up for this talk with a pub full of people and kids and went well we picked a bad day because all the sand and dust had gone in the air from the Sahara which had been dragged up so I was like well seeing probably won't be that great I'm two astronomers down but 
bear with me and we're going to go for it. We did it. They went out to the telescopes and what I did is I put the biggest eyepieces in I could and said to the kids and everything, get on the telescope. This is how it moves around. Have a look through and just look around the sky. I'm not going to point at anything. Just look around and look at stars and things. And they had a great time. And it, it's something different because usually you'll find that people will go, we're looking at Jupiter or we're looking at this and that's it. But uh, because I didn't have as many people to be able to do things like that, I thought, you know what, let's give them free reign. What could go wrong? <laughs> How many scopes could get broken? Let's just go for it. And actually, it taught me that that is a really good thing to do. It's really good for them because they're actually playing with the scopes and feeling them and, you know, looking around themselves. So, yeah, the gig went really, really, really well. Started off a little bit, oh no, what am I going to do? But yeah, we managed to raise about, I think it's about just under £60 for the night, which is all donated to us. And uh, I think they got, if they wanted to, they could have a, a sausage and a drink for a fiver and then all those funds would go to us as well. So yeah, they had a really, really, really good evening. And you've got a, another event coming up at the beginning of December, haven't you? A big event. Yeah, yeah, the 1st of December. We're doing a sort of like a Christmas stargazing. So it's going to be, again, the uh, Beginner's Guide to Astronomy because it's a new group of people. And that's in Middleton Pavilion, I believe it is. And funnily enough, yesterday morning, I was at Middleton Primary School doing a quick assembly. I had to do two assemblies and it oh man it was to like 400 children and uh they absolutely loved it they kind of the teachers had to a few times step in front of me and put their hand up because apparently if you put your hand up all the kids put their hands up and go quiet for the teachers they're a bit like they're getting rowdy but for me seeing the kids getting rowdy and chatty that's them getting excited that means they're enjoying it they want to go yeah. out they're now itching to for it to get dark <laughs> And uh, for me, I'm like, that's what I want. And yeah, I got all the kids up with the solar system and talked to them. So hopefully they all got leaflets for the event. So that's 400 kids. And, you know, if, if any of them turn up, I told them they can get to look through any of the telescopes that we got there and maybe actually see some of the stuff that I've been talking about today. And yeah, that was, that was pretty tiring work. An hour, one. Then it was a gap. Then there was another load. <laughs> then I got invited for lunch. So I was like, oh, I had a t you know, school, you know, dinners. school dinners. <laughs> Like jacket potato cheese and beans style <laughs> so, oh man it was brilliant yeah so i did two assemblies with them and i was kind of like you know you sit there and you think i used to sit there and watch a guy chatting and you know be really excited about you know, like the bird of prey guy or the lizard guy or stuff like that mm -hmm. i kind of walked away from the school and thought wow i'm now that guy i'm nothing i'm just the average guy but i now am the one that kids look to and learn from and you know you just get that little feeling of like pride and you well up a little bit yeah i, I know yeah, exactly and I sat what in you mean the car for five minutes afterwards and i was thinking man up ross what's wrong with you <laughs> <laughs> so yeah hopefully from that the first of december in middleton uh, we're going to put it all on our website which is www.ukastronomy.org. So if you guys want to pop along, if you're local, MK, or some people from Aylesbury come along, Northampton or Olney, yeah, come along. Learn about the skies. And there's going to be a little... Uh, I'm going to do the science of Santa as well. And it's all the science actually behind Santa and the fact that he actually can do what he does mm -hmm. if he's a certain thing. So if there are any kids listening, he does exist and I can explain how he does what he does. Yeah, also, we've been uh, quite lucky. My wife has managed to get us in uh, Aviva, have sort of like a community fund and uh, for, for projects, for charities and things like that. And what happens is if you go on there, you can vote for us. You get 10 votes and you can put as many votes onto whoever else you want. But we would ask if uh, you could give us the 10 votes, UK Astronomy, that would be fantastic. And the more votes you get, it's almost like the more sort of funds you get. I think they've added an extra... 
I think they've added an extra £20,000 to it because it crashed the first day when everyone was trying to vote. <laughs> so now there's even more money that we could get to I – like, I don't like saying money. I like saying donations because money sounds like I'm a bit of a money-grabbing. <laughs> but if we, if you guys vote for us, and it's all like, they're all on our Facebook, but I think it's uh, – if you go to Aviva, it's under Community Fund aviva.co.uk and uh, you look for UK Astronomy on there I think you might have to register but that takes like two seconds and if you don't want the emails just literally click a button and they won't go to you but that money if we get even like even just a bit a tiny bit it's going to help us get this mobile observatory mm-hmm. and if we get this mobile observatory it's going to completely change what UK Astronomy is because at the moment we can only do our you know the local community and to be honest with you, we do struggle because I only have one car and a motorbike. So I have to, if I've got an event like yesterday, I have to drive my wife to work, fill the car up with all the scopes and everything I can, then drive to the place, get it all out, do it all, drive back. I mean, when I first started, I used to take my own TV because I had no projector or anything. I'd put the TV in the back seat and drive there and connect the laptop up to it. So to get this van it would just be it, you know it, everything will be in it and it will have lights it will have projectors awning I can just turn up and it will be like showmanship it will be like you know I won't just turn up and go hi I'm Ross it will be like look at this this is brilliant this, here's all the scopes in it look what it does you know talk all about it it will just be you know it be the centrepiece of UK astronomy and we can take it anywhere all over the UK so you guys if you vote from the UK at this Aviva thing and we can get some more money towards getting that we can come and see you if you know a school that's somewhere tell us where you want us and we will we'll talk to the local council in that group we'll ring them up and pester them as you as you said Mark you like pestering the council so yeah <laughs> we'll keep pestering them until they say okay and then we can contact all the things in that area and we can come there and stay there for a couple of days and teach everyone even during the day because we have solar scopes as well so yeah, if you can pop on to Aviva or just look at our Facebook or on the website, we'll have it on there and chuck your votes our way. It would really, really, really help us out and I'd really appreciate it. So what we'll do is we'll put a link to it also on the show notes so that people can um, go from there if they can't remember uh, what you've said. Yeah, yeah, no problem. So I've got, yeah, I've got the link here, so I'll, I'll send that to you guys. And uh, we're also, another thing, we're everywhere now. Uh, if you live in the Milton Keynes area or you like John Lewis, come to Milton Keynes. Even if you're just going to go, I think you can do it just for a coffee, I'm not sure, or a meal, you'll get a token if you go into their cafe. And if you put that token into the UK Astronomy one, there'll be free charities there. That'll be fantastic. It's money there that's for charities that they're giving away, and we're actually there for uh, November. So if you could pop into the Milton Keynes one in the city centre, and, you know, I'm, I might have to go every day and buy a coffee. <laughs> just to do it and pop that token in there that's more money that will really help us out because we are only a small charity we're pretty much run by myself my wife and my friend mick there's some other astronomers that pop along as well and help us and do bits but we're the main you know there's only kind of three of us so we're punching really well above our belt (laughs) and above our weight so yeah if you can help us out in any way you know we will do whatever we can for you so if you can help us we would absolutely love it. Thank you so much. Well, Ross, thanks for coming on the show again. You're more than welcome. Thank you for having me again, listening to me going on and on. 
we've been wanting to bring in the, the astronomy side of it for a while. We, we just needed someone who's a bit more clued up than us to bring it to the people. Well, I try. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I'm an expert. As I said, I'm the average guy who got a telescope, has a passion for it, and I just want to tell you all about it. So I'm not going to be right all the time. And if I'm not, tell me, because it's great, because I like to learn as well. It's always a process of learning and going on. If I can find stuff out for you and get you out there and tell you what's happening, I'm more than happy. It makes my day. I love coming on chatting to you guys. So, John, things are really moving forward for UK astronomy at the moment. They're getting a lot of publicity and uh, hopefully a bit of funding from these different projects that they're involved with. And uh, as we mentioned there, that section of the podcast is expanding, coming up with ideas that it's going to link both the websites together so that things that he's mentioning on there, people can actually link to it straight away and, and look at images and locations of where they are in the skies and that's where the uh, pages on the site for them will come into their own. Mm -hmm. It is neat to think that some of those planets are, are they are visible to the naked eye but then you just get a decent telescope and you can really see them. Yeah and it doesn't have to be that expensive. No. Yeah you can do a lot with a cheaper scope but obviously if you want the best results you pay a bit for it well i mean that's going to be the case on anything but get the interest first mm -hmm. and then then go for the big stuff just uh, like anything else as, as, as russ has mentioned in the past i mean you go out and buy a, a big scope straight away you might not get on with it mm -hmm. and that's a lot of money to waste yeah if you don't get on with it so you know start small and work your way up to something big we are going to be working a lot more with UK Astronomy, hopefully to bring a UK Astronomy stroke TGP nominal Yuri's Night event next year. Nice. So watch this space. Ah, <laughs> oh, if only I could get over there. We'll get there somehow. Mm -hmm. We'll get there. No. Or the other way around. You know, you come on over here and go down to Goddard and uh, Air and Space Museum and all that good stuff. Yeah, hopefully with a bit of funding, uh, which is the podcast resolution for 2018 is funding. And we are going to explore other av avenues uh, with funding. Hopefully we can bring better content and go to a few more events and uh, all kinds of different things. So that's what we need to do for next year. Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, Spanhead Productions. .weebly.com That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com So, let's start wrapping things up. Sounds good to me. Is that a Christmas reference? Not quite yet. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Still too soon for you? <laughs> yeah. To heck with that. I'm going to get my Christmas music going. <laughs> it's time. Once again, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. 
Pleasure to be back, sir. And it's always good to get Ross involved and uh, UK Astronomy. I know Mick works hard to get things going. He's the guy who organises the uh, the monthly quiz that they have on the UK Astronomy Facebook group page. It's worth going in for. It, some of the questions are quite taxing. Some of them you might know already, but it does get you looking things up. And that's the whole point of it. So once again, everybody out there, thanks for listening the show wouldn't be anything without you and uh, we'll speak to you all again real soon toodles well that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal be sure to visit tgpnominal.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode just look for the relevant tab on the menu let us know what you think of the show send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com because your input is our output or you can use the social media icons at the top of the page that include twitter and facebook if you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts you can do so via itunes the rss feed and also stitcher and TuneIn on demand radio don't forget to rate and review us you can find links on all our podcast pages if you like what we're doing here then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages and don't forget to spread the word about us Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event.